Welcome to Blue Fire's podcast, where we entertain you with tales of famous people you've never heard of. Each week, Steve, Lottie or Linda will guide you through the centuries to shine the spotlight once again on entertainers that history has forgotten. Join us for drama, interviews and the occasional chat over a bottle of wine as we discover that the topics of plague, poverty and overnight stardom are not unique to the 21st century. For today's episode, we are very fortunate to have the wonderful Kate Griffin, author of my favourite Kitty Peck and the Music Hall Murders series of books, um, which I'm on Zoom and Kate is waving the first one at me as we (laughs) speak and I've got a copy on the bookcase next door. Um, She's also written some children's books and other things, but uh, Kitty is what I'm interested in because Kitty is about Music Hall um, and I believe based on a real person but more of that later um first off welcome Kate and Hello, thank you for having me absolute pleasure and if do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and why you like the music hall genre and all that stuff right well it's kind of an unlikely story really um I am a former journalist I'm actually I should kind of like you go back even further and admit that I'm a completely failed actress really <laughs> that's what you know if I could do anything that's what I'd be my little feet would be pattering on a stage somewhere but they're not um so I did the next best thing which was I became a journalist really um and like all good journalists I eventually skipped over the fence like a like poacher turned gamekeeper is it the other way around and I went into PR and um I eventually ended up working for Britain's oldest heritage charity which revels in the name of the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings but it's actually SPAB which is a very unglorious note. and don't ever try and google that in in kind of if you're in Germany because it comes up as something very different something you probably if you're interested in old buildings you probably wouldn't be interested in what comes up um as part of that we really Spab's uh, mission was to look after old buildings and Ripley with a particular interest in the care and repair of them um and how they were constructed and how you kind of kept the, the integrity and the pattern of the building um we were based in Spitalfields in the East End although we we're a national charity and we became slightly involved with the restoration of the marvellous Wilton's Music Hall in Three Gases Alley and one day I, I went down there with several of my colleagues and they were all very technical they were all things like kind of building surveyors and architects and I, and I was just a press officer really going along to record what we were doing and I remember very clearly it was about a decade ago maybe just under a decade ago uh, we were standing in this ramshackle auditorium there were pigeons flying around there was dust on the floor it had it was actually being used at the time but it you know they were right at the beginning of um a kind of a fundraising effort and I really clearly remember my colleagues doing things like kind of talking about the the woodworm and the, the tensile strength of the floorboards and they were sort of tapping things and they were saying where they were going to put the acropops and this kind of stuff and I genuinely was staring at the stage and just inhaling the atmosphere of this incredible I mean you could just feel it you could just feel the sort of the performers who'd been there you know George George Layton Jake Laybourne rather you could just feel that these people have been on that stage Murray Lloyd had been on that stage and I also knew that um, my family came from Limehouse and I knew that they had been to that musical so you know it was kind of a I suppose it was a sort of a wonderful research into my own family or a connection with my own family that I was standing there a hundred years later breathing in the atmosphere 
um, in a very different way, to which my granny had stood there, you know, kind of probably as a groundling or something, just in the audience, you know, with a glass of gin in her hand or something. So it was pretty much so that day, my colleagues at SPAB went back to the office with a very detailed restoration plan. And I went back with the germ of an idea for um, a novel or, or a book. And that book became Kitty Peck and the Musical Murders. So um, that's it. Which one, which I entered for a competition, actually. I wrote, I wrote 6,000 words, which were heavily based on that visit to the musical. And then I entered them for a competition run by Stylist Magazine and Faber and Faber. And I never expected to hear any more. And it, it won, those 6,000 words won the competition and the prize was the publication of the book. And so the, and after that, I've, I've published various more books. There's a Kitty Peck series, but I also wrote a series for children about London as well. So. But I've started the, the Kitty Peck series, which I, I love. I'm reading in completely the wrong order. So oh, no. I need to start again. It's probably best if you start from the beginning. They, yeah. <laughs> Although they, they do stand alone. They do, they do just about stand alone. Um, but you have to keep your wits about you. But really, if you start at the beginning and work your way through, you, you work out, you know, how all the various plot strands, subplot strands, mingle together. Because Kitty ends up by default being the owner of a three music, really kind of like rag ragtag musicals in the East End. But she ends up also, and she's only 18 years old. She's a brave, mouthy Cockney which, again, I think goes back to my family a bit. Um, but she ends up um, also running a small criminal, well, a very large criminal enterprise, actually, on the banks of the Thames. And it's um, it's about morals, I think. It's about morals and decency and, you know, standing up for yourself. And the one thing I would say about Kitty is that, like I think many of the performers, she does, her life is kind of not black and white. It's she's She kind of inhabits a grey area. So she's morally dubious herself in some ways as well. Well, and I think as well, the, the music hall was always viewed as the the slightly um, less salubrious oh, um, yeah. element of entertainment, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't right. like legit theatre. No, no, darling. No. <laughs> no, no. I think you were, you know, any woman who appeared on the musical stage was immediately regarded as a fallen woman. It makes it quite um, impressive that when Vesta Tilly retired, Ellen Terry, no less, turned up to the, the final performance. Didn't really? She? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yes, no, so. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. I did know that um, there was a kind of a huge public tribute. When Vesta Tilly retired, there was a, a huge public tribute and they asked people to sign it. And um, three of the signatories were Arthur Conan Doyle. How amazing is that? Um, Charlie Chaplin and Harry Houdini. I mean, just, you know... <laughs> That's impressive, isn't it? it is impressive, yeah. On your leaving card, Vesta. Yeah, yes. I would love that. <laughs> so would I, my goodness. Vesta Tilly, obviously, a male impersonator. Yes. Um, and our Kitty drags up, doesn't she, as yeah, well? She does. So Kitty, um, there are three times in the series when Kitty disguises herself as a man. But I very deliberately decided to sort of invert that that trope of musical. So she never, um, she, she, she starts as a performer. She's um, in the first book, she's kind of hung above the auditorium of a really manky theatre called the Gaiety, uh, the Gordy rather. Um, and she's supposed to be looking for the killer or the supposed killer in the audience below. Um, but when she does do uh, the, the male impersonator thing, it's when she moves out into society, into places that she is a woman and particularly as a young East End woman couldn't go to. So she's taken to an incredibly classy art gallery at the West End and she has to dress as a young man or a masher to go there. 
Um, and then in several of the other books, she she tries to get entrance, or she does get entrance to a, a very swanky London club. And again, she dresses as a man to do that. But I really consciously decided that she was going to perform as a male impersonator when she wasn't on stage, as a kind of a nice kind of just inversion of that, you know, that whole music. Mm. Yeah. And, and is she actually based on anyone in particular? The person that was in my mind when I created Kitty, uh, Kitty was um, Jenny Hill, who I'm sure you know, who, her nickname was The Vital Spark. And she was a, a, a you know, she was a famous performer, actually, a sort of singer, dancer as well. But actually, she was very well known for her male impersonation routine as well. And particularly what she was known for was her salty back chat to the audience. Because you know, I think people forget, you know, it wasn't like the good old days, which which I kind of loved because I used to watch it with my granny, the good old days, and I love the costumes. Um, but, you know, it wasn't people in a musical, as you probably well know, I'm sure, you know, people weren't sitting in polite rows and kind of sipping their drinks and sort of being polite. I mean, it was a pulpit. They were, you know, so they, they, the poor women and men on the stage were belting out these songs above the sounds of, um, you know, arguments, drinks, chaos, um, drunken sort of reveling in the stands and um, particularly someone like um, Jenny Hill was really known to be able to put people down and she you know could bellow out over the, the, the raucous kind of awfulness of what was going on and and give give as good as she got from the audience and people loved that people really respected that and and I think in lots of ways musical performers were kind of like um, the stand-up you know they were the forerunners of stand-up comedians because they had that real interaction instant interaction with their audience they weren't like people in a, a polite Victorian drawing room drama they were as much of the the raucous party if you like you know they were taking part in that room they were they were you know there was no third wall or fourth wall they were in it you know they were in it to win it or die basically <laughs> and and I think that was it wasn't it you stood or, or fell by that yeah. one performance every single time you went out every and if you I, if you well, died on stage you weren't employed again and that was no. it no, and it must have been terrifying. I think it must have been absolutely terrifying. So these women, particularly the women, but also the men, they must have had nerves of steel and they must have had kind of like, you know, they, 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 they really must have been tough, tough people. And be really quick-witted. Really quick-witted, really clever, really sharp. Um, a lot of them were Londoners, a lot of them kind of like, and, that, you know, there's that sort of Cockney spirit, which, you know, I... I I did see in my own family that real kind of like mouthy, 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 very quick. And also what was valued in my family, and I believe was probably valued, was your ability to make people laugh and your ability to stand up for yourself. I saw that with my my mum had five brothers um, and, you know, she came from an even bigger family uh, of Londoners. And what they loved was, you know, having a really good argument, really. But it was very good humoured. Um, but what was valued above everything else was, you know, winning, winning or being the funniest or being the loudest. So and I think that is very much a, you know, kind of that East End musical tradition. I know that the, the halls are all over the country as well. But what I'm kind of basing my books on is my idea of what my family would have seen or gone through, I suppose, or enjoyed. Yeah. But the other thing about the, the musical performance and, you know, that toughness is that, a lot of them, you know, kind of they sought refuge in alcohol and drugs. You know, it was a way of kind of toughening themselves up. I mean, a, a woman, you know, a woman, a man in theatre at that time, they wouldn't just appear, as, a, as you know, at one music hall in an evening. They'd rattle between, you know, three or four, five, six venues, um, do their act, and then, you know, get into another carriage, happy carriage, rumble off. Um, in the depths of winter, it must have been appalling, you know, and the nerves and the, and, and the kind of like, 
there's a kind of fear of what you were you know, letting yourself into next. And a lot of them were alcoholic. A lot of them, um, you know, were addicted to opium, you know, or sometimes or laudanum or drugs that kind of dulled their nerves. Um, and a lot of them, you know, had very short, brief, quite, you know, brutal lives as well. So, um, well, and and you think about sort of the, the glamour of theatre, but most of these people didn't even have a dressing room to change in, did they? No, you no. change in the taxi or on, on the, the way. Wings. Yeah, you, yeah, you change in the hackney carriage on the way, and then you kind of like, oh yeah, you fought, you fought into your, you know, trousers or something. <laughs> <laughs> if you were bester in the wings, it wasn't, as you say, it wasn't glorious or, or you know, even kind of glittering or glamorous. It was, um, but which does bring me back to the good old days because I think also my books were probably influenced by by the good old days as well because my granny used to babysit for me on a Friday night when I was really little. Um, we lived in Islington um, and I used to be taken around to my, my grandparents' house and she loved the good old days. She absolutely, I mean, she knew all the songs for a start and I used to sit and she used to let me stay up and watch it and she would pour me a tiny top of um, Guinness in a tiny, tiny little glass. I don't even remember those glasses that had kind of like vintage cars on them. I was weedy. And I used to sit and keep very quiet because I wanted to stay up. And I loved all the hats and the, and it was, was it the variety, the Leeds variety? Leeds City variety. I mean, you know, it was, it was so glamorous. That theatre was so glamorous and so gorgeous. And, and, you know, the kind of the chairman with his hammer and this time chiefly yourselves and all those kind of feathers and things on the women's hats and the men's uniforms. And I thought that was wildly glamorous <laughs> well do you know, it's funny you should say that because so did I um I absolutely loved it and I got to do panto more than once at the lead city varieties oh, backstage <laughs> was not glamorous let me tell you well it's like every theater you go into it's such an illusion isn't it you yeah. know and um and so we, we had unmatching chairs and the paintwork hadn't been looked at for 20 years and the stage door, you have to climb in behind the bins to get there because the bins have got to go somewhere and the stage door's at the back. Oh, my memories, my memories are afraid. <laughs> I know. But you see, do you know what? It didn't matter. You get out on that stage and, and the auditorium still looked beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it was gorgeous. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Really lovely. Yeah, you know, all those kind of like glittering golden boxes and you know. Mm. And that's the the other thing as well, especially at this time of year, the um whole panto season yeah. tradition in yeah. so many music hall people got involved in that, didn't they? Yeah, um, yeah. And and I think also, you know, that whole cross dressing thing, you mm. know, the, the pantomime is probably the last bastion of that, isn't it? One of the last bastions of that on stage. Um, and I think also pantomime itself is a is a fantastic sort of last bastion of musical, you know, with the dame kind of coming out and belting out a totally inappropriate song, dressed in something with fairy lights all over it. And, and you know, you have all the kind of the boys and the girls and who are kind of like singing the latest thing in the charts, <laughs> kind of ripping it off, basically, you know, while they're sort of dancing around the fairy village and stuff like that. I mean, I love it. And, that is, and I do actually love pantomime as well. And I loved it from a really early age. And I think it's mainly because we moved when I was quite young to Watford um, and we used to go over Christmas to the Watford Palace Theatre to see the pantomime, which is my, probably my first experience of theatre at the age of, you know, live theatre at the age of about five, four or five. Um, and of course, the Watford Palace was an old musical as well, which is very, and it's very beautiful inside. Um, but the, I, we saw Cinderella when I was about four. 
Um, and what I fell in love with more than anything else was the fact that Cinderella's coach was was kind of pulled by two live Shetland ponies who had been dusted with kind of glitter at the time. And, you know, and as a kind of horse mad four year old who loved kind of who really liked performing as well, I think that set in my mind the idea that that was something you could do. You know? yes. <laughs> Get on stage with a glitter covered Shetland pony. How life could not be better. <laughs> the the whole thing about um, the animals on stage is obviously very different now from very, the way it was now, then yes i'm not condoning it i would like no, to say no, no. no but I, was, I was just going to say i've never worked with a shetland pony that no one covered in glitter but i did have in one cinderella that i did we had six russian samoyed dogs oh, being the sleigh and that was wonderful and they were all named after nordic gods Oh so, yes, and they, they were just lovely, and they did. Oh, I can a, imagine they did their own little act, which is oh. again that's sort of going back to music hall, isn't it? They did their speciality act, and that's what these people did. You know, so the pantos would go on for four or five hours sometimes because yeah. yeah, you could be in there the whole day practically, couldn't you? You know, yeah. Kind of, the other thing that is in you, know, you you could spend the whole day literally watching these pantomimes, but also in um in a, a variety theatre or a pantomime theatre or musical, you know, there was food and drink going on as well. Mm. Whereas if you were in a very polite theatre, um, I think the only drink that was served was champagne, wasn't it? Because that was considered to be not terribly alcoholic or therefore not a drink. Um, you know, it you would could, work for me. It would work, it would work <laughs> for me as well. But there was that, you know, that was the social divide, was that the, the, you know, the, the panto classes or the musical classes, they were allowed to kind of have, you know, hard liquor and, gin and spirits and beer whereas if you went to the polite theatre it was like you know just champagne a bit like the queen mother who didn't believe that champagne and dubonny were alcoholic you know (laughs) that's why she was a legend that's why she lived so long (laughs) yes absolutely absolutely there's 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 something in that (laughs) but you know i think it was to go i mean we're laughing but to go back it was hard it was a hard a terribly hard life and talking about, you know, Vesta Tilly, who I think was also in my mind when I was writing Kitty, it wasn't just Jenny Hill, but but someone like Vesta Tilly, both she and um, Jenny Hill first, you know, kind of donned breeches as boy parts when they were both very young, quite young. And both of them, you know, were kind of on, the, especially um, Jenny, she was on her own at the time. I think Vesta Tilly was working with her father at the point. But I, you do wonder kind of like, whether it was kind of protection kind of incredibly predatory very rough atmosphere whether they felt like putting putting on a boy's outfit was almost like a an armor and that's kind of one of the things I tried to play with in the kitty books when she goes out into society disguised as a boy not on stage it's kind of an armor that means that she can pass and kind of like feel strong and she's, you know, there's scenes where she's taught to walk like a man and stuff like that. And she's complaining about how he gets such chafing me parts and things. And, you know, <laughs> because obviously you wouldn't be used to it. Um, well, no. <laughs> obviously. But that, that's very Vesta, isn't it? Because she used to wear all the underwear and everything as she well. Did. Yeah, she did, didn't she? Mm-hmm. That was, um, but, but she um, really kind of like hung on to her femininity, didn't she? So she always spoke and sang in a clearly female voice so she didn't kind of like she didn't pretend to be a man she didn't sing in the deep voice so you know the audience was always in on the game with her weren't they so you know they, they very much knew that I mean it's kind of like the tradition there's always been that weird tradition in in polite theatre which you know in the restoration wasn't so polite where you know women women were like Nell Gwynn you know made her name playing the boy parts didn't she yes 
Yeah. So, you know, and then that, I mean, the theatre has always been a sort of fabulously topsy-turvy. I mean, I love the fact in Shakespeare. I mean, there's a wonderful, the idea that they're kind of like all the, all the women are played by men anyway in Shakespeare originally. But then when you get a character like um, Viola in Twelfth Night, who's a girl playing a boy who's, you know, kind of like, that's so meta because it would have been a boy playing a girl. A girl playing a boy. Um, yeah. You know, that's, and, that, and but everyone watching that must have been in on that as a joke. It's, it's very odd. And as you say, now we tend to see it mainly in Panto. Yes. Um, certainly, certainly for the male impersonators. Obviously, we've got a, a good old tradition of uh, drag acts and and female Definitely. impersonators. You know? Definitely, yeah, yeah. So. And long may they last, because you know they're fantastic. No, I was going to say, and a lot of those you know fantastic pantomime dames, they have that larger than life quality, and they have no fear because they they quite often keep a panto on track don't they they i think they always keep a panto on track because basically they're never off stage unless they're doing a quick change into another outfit yeah which is kind of even more fabulous than the last one yes (laughs) yeah where is this going to go how many fairy lights can you put on this yeah Yeah. i I love that i love it but i do you know it's quite a seat they are the linchpin of the pantomime and they probably have that quality of you know the people who did go on to the stage of the horse and that they will they are fearless quite often you know and that that banter that backtrack they have with the audience is you know it's one of the great joys of going to a pantomime at this time of year because you never quite know you know what's gonna I, I worked um as an usher when I was at university um I worked as an usherette at the Watford Palace Theatre because I was determined I was going to work in the third theatre somehow um and I worked over the panto seasons and I, I used to love it I used to actually I was rubbish at the maths because I couldn't I couldn't sell an ice cream and add up to save my life but I was there anyway and enjoying it and what I really loved was the afternoon performances were very different to the evening performances so in the afternoon you might get a school party in and you might get some mums and dads and at the weekend you get some grannies bringing the grannies and granddads um, but in the evenings, especially sort of from around Christmas night onwards and that kind of week, um, the evening performances were very few children quite often. Mm. They were raucous adults who were really giving it large. You know? <laughs> and the pantomime dames you know, gave it back fantastically. And sometimes it was quite filthy. I mean, really quite filthy. I mean, you know, side-splittingly filthy, actually, but which makes me think of, you know, stand-up again as well. So. It, it is. And, and I think with panto, it's, it's written on so many different levels, isn't it? Yeah. People will laugh at the same joke for completely different reasons. Different reasons, yeah. And, yeah, some of those jokes are calibrated to be understood in different ways, aren't they? So, yes. you know, if you're a five-year-old, you might think one thing. But, you know, if you're a kind of a, anything above the age of well, probably about 11 these days, you're thinking something completely different. <laughs> Indeed. And, of course, in the, the originals, um, or even certainly back in Victorian times, the... The whole thing of the principal boy was because it was a little risque. You could actually see more than a lady's ankles. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Tight-fitting trousers and nice tights. and that. Yes. But it was okay. Also, have you noticed there are fewer um, principal boys? Quite quite often, I think now, um, you know, I think times have changed and people feel uncomfortable. And it is that something for the dads thing, I think, that's, you know, mm. we are very aware of sexism and they don't, you know, all of the isms in theatre rightly these days and you know I think I've I've noticed that some of those things have disappeared and it is quite sad in some ways I saw the last pantomime I saw with the principal boy it was um Nicola McAuliffe at Norwich 
Um, and she was um, she was probably older than the average principal boy, let's be honest. It wasn't that long ago. It was only about 15, 20 years ago. Um, but she was fabulous because she was fully aware of what she was doing and she was fully aware of the tropes and everything. Hmm. And she really played with it. And the dame was Desmond Barrett. Oh, um, I think. And he love him. Just amazing. He hmm. was, he was, and when you talk about control, you know, kind of like how you've got the audience literally eating out of the palm of your hand, he, you know, he was an absolute master, an absolute master. Oh, ab- absolutely. I saw him in a funny thing happened to the way to, on the way to the forum at the National Theatre. And he, oh my goodness, that must have been about 15 years ago. And That's he. Favorite musicals. Oh. I think we have similar taste in musicals. I think we. I think we have. <laughs> but he was wonderful. I can imagine. Yeah, he was wonderful. And again, it's the, all the, all the stock jokes that aren't actually ad libbed, but you think they are because they've been yeah. rehearsed so well. Yeah. Um, everything that looks to be impromptu that isn't, and anything that did come up from the audience, he was. He just dealt with that thinking on his feet as well. He was amazing. Brilliant, isn't it? That's, yeah, um, I would like to see more of that. Actually, that that, that sort of anarchic freedom. That's um, mm-hmm. and that is a, actually it's quite an, an important word. That sort of anarchic sense that you know that all of those performers bring to pantomime, and I think was also a big part of music hall as well. Um, and especially with the women, you know, they kind of didn't have reputations to lose. You know, but yes. you know, so they didn't care. No, anything know. went, didn't they? Anything went. Mm. You know, really. Um, and so for somebody like um, like Jenny, Jenny Hill, I mean, she she actually made a fortune for a woman at that time. And didn't she end up owning music halls as well? Yeah, she, actually, she wasn't, that wasn't her finest hour, to be honest. She um, she ended up owning, I think, three music halls. Um, there was the Star in Bermondsey, the Rainbow in, I think, Southampton. And the Rainbow burnt down two weeks after she bought it. And I stole that in the second book, actually, which was Kitty Bird. So Kitty's, she inherits these musicals. And then in the second book, the best one burns down. And I stole that from, from Jenny as well. Um, there's a spoiler. There's a spoiler, yes. It's not really a spoiler. <laughs> um, but she also had a, a very sort of plush house, I think, in Stratton called The Hermitage. This is Jenny. Um, and there was lots of stuff in the press. Lots of people insinuated things about her. So um, there were two things they used to say about women who, who worked in musical. Um, one thing was that the stage was bad for their health. That was quite often in newspaper reports. And that was a kind of like a veiled insinuation that they were drunk or that they were alcoholic. And the other thing that was very often said about Jenny in particular, because she was doing so well, was that she was a clever little thing which sort of suggested that she might be a prostitute or that she was earning her living, you know, her earnings immorally and that she was doing far too well for somebody from her class and her rank and her profession to be, you know, there must be something. She must have a wealthy protector or provider who is giving her. I mean, it is quite offensive because actually... It's outrageous, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, she was working her socks off and she was quite an astute businesswoman. Um, and she was very good at what she did. I mean, yeah. I, I love the, the story of George Laban being late to go on for his own turn because she was doing so well and she had so many curtain calls. And in the end, he carried her back on. Did he? Yeah, because it's... <laughs> <laughs> but he was kind of like, he, was, he kind of found her, didn't he, Laban? I mean, he was, a, he was a great friend and almost a mentor to her because she... I think when she came there, she had a terrible time up in Bradford as a as a child performer. 
um because her father had sent her up there and she worked in a kind of a real backstreet musical but it's where she learned her profession and then she married somebody called John Pastor who was an acrobat and, and at the, this, this is what makes me think about sort of young women needing some sort of protection she, she was only 17 when she married John Pastor and it you know she was working in this real spit and sawdust backstreet bar with stage really um, and you wonder whether she married that young because she needed someone to protect her or felt that she he was vulnerable in some way. Um, and, and it didn't work out because he left her within three years and she had two children or three children, I think, by that time. She came back down to London um, and she did a tryout at the London Pavilion. And Laybourne was the, I think he was the sort of um, the chairman that evening or the master of ceremonies. She did this tryout. Um, I can't remember. I think she may have sung The Boy I Love Is Up In The Gallery, but you would know better because... Obviously. I'm sure she did sing it. Everyone seems to have sung Everyone. it, but we know who sang it first. It we do. Power. <laughs> Another <laughs> male impersonator. And not a male impersonator. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, she was. Oh, was she? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yes, what she I did. Her that. big hit before The Boy I Love Is Up In The Gallery, her big hit was The City Toff. Um, oh, oh, that's interesting. Mm. I did not know that. That's um. Well, anyway, everyone, no one nicked the city toff, did they? But everyone nicked no. The it's got ten verses. I'll learn them one day. <laughs> <laughs> but so perhaps anyway, Jenny was doing as her tryout. The boy I love is up in the gallery. Um, apparently, after she finished, the, the the audience went. The crowd went wild. She ran off into the wings and was shaking like a leaf. And Laybourne took her hand and led her back onto the stage and said, "Sing again." They loved you, and that was how her career in London took off. Which I think is a lovely story. That's so nice. But he, he's got such a reputation for being such a generous chap, anyway, hasn't he? Yeah. I would have liked George, I think. Yeah, and I think he was probably a very decent man. Have you? Seen, I saw his um, grave in Abney Cemetery. I think it was Abney Cemetery. Oh yes, I went to see it because he's next door to Nellie Power. Yeah, that's how I found. That's how I first found out about Nellie. Actually, oh. was, um, and she made a huge impression on me as well. Is that such a sad? You know, that's not a story of triumph or. Um, no, <laughs> yeah, it's a sad, sad story. And but she was so sweet faced and beautiful, wasn't she, mm. um, Nelly? I she mean, was. it was after after I saw her her grave, and that was it was quite sad at the time. They were trying to raise funds in the because lots of musical performers are buried at Abney Cemetery, and they were trying to raise funds. I think it was the British Musical Society to um, you know to clear it really of mm. ivy and to kind of repair it. And it was so interesting. And he told this the this, this story of her life, and I went back and looked her up and. When you see photographs of her, because there are photographs of Nellie Power, she's got a really sweet, contemporary, almost contemporary little face, a little heart-shaped face. She has. And she's, you know, really, you could almost imagine her, you know, meeting her on the street today. You yeah. really could. She's, she's a, a dear little thing, isn't she? Yeah, a really dear little thing. Mm. Well, I like that little corner of Abney Park Cemetery because she's in there and George Laban's in there and Albert Chevalier, yes, yeah. is, who is his son-in-law, and so it's almost like a little family corner and Herbert Campbell's in there, isn't yeah. it? So. Yeah, I did the musical tour, actually. Um, it was this time of year. It was either sort of December or November. And it was really atmospheric and, and really... And all these names that... I mean, to be honest, I don't think musical names are very well known to most people today. Um, and I think that's a great shame because um, I think a lot, of, a lot of what we see on TV, a lot of variety, a lot of entertainment is a kind of a direct... A descendant of musical 
Um, but that day I was surprised there were about 20 of us who turned up to do the musical tour. Oh, that's and, nice. Uh, swapping stories and things. And, and Fanny, uh, Je- Jenny, I keep calling her Fanny. I want to say Fanny Hill quite a lot of the time, okay. said, but it's Jenny Hill. But Jenny's buried in Nunhead Cemetery. Okay, so she's um, south of the river. She's south of She ended up, well, she had her house in Streatham, remember, the Hermitage, mm. I suppose that's why. Um, but, but that's, again, um, a kind of a cemetery where... Yeah, lots of outsiders, non-conformist out- and outsiders are buried. And I think there was a lion tamer near near Jason. <laughs> and yeah, they were of course. You know, they were kind of they weren't quite good enough to be, even though they were well known and kind of and in Jenny's case, rich when they died, they still weren't quite good enough to be in the hallowed, you know, the great hallowed areas. It's quite That's- just amazing the whole class system on a, a different level again isn't yeah. it and especially if you were a woman as well you know because yes. I mean there, were, there was a point in her career where Jenny was earning you know 80 pounds a week um and that, she you know she would advertise that as well she was so savvy so when she was taken on somewhere and she was earning 80 pounds a week to, to perform three times a night at, I think it was a hip, one of the hippodromes I think it was there were loads of hippodromes as you know <laughs> but um but what she did was she took um, a, a, an advertisement out in the newspaper and and showed people that she had been engaged for 80 pounds a week and um, because she wanted to show people what she was worth oh good for her and but that's that, so savvy that's it's, it, it is that there's um a story of Nellie doing a show that she was top of the bill for um, and they actually advertised on the posters. They only had her name, no one else's. And they said on the posters, there will be no increase in ticket prices for this <laughs> event, which shows kind of what a big star she must have been. Yeah, yeah. she really must have. And yet she ended up sort of dying in a back room in Is- was it Islington. Or- yes, yeah, yeah, she did. Yeah. It, um, and d- there wasn't enough money to pay for the funeral. Yeah. I really urge people to seek out pictures of Nellie and look at her, because I think, you know, she's she is such a sweet-faced, lovely person. She is. We love her. <laughs> it's not all sad stories. I mean, if you think about someone like Bester Tilly, um, you know, who is also you know, part of these kind of these wonderful male impersonators, she went on to have a, a lovely life and she married, she became Lady to Freeze. She did, didn't she do well? She did very and she had a house in Hove and a flat, a house in Monte. You know, she had a flat in Hove and a house in Monte Carlo, and her husband ended up running for Parliament. And you know, she actually became very respectable. you were saying earlier actually about people not knowing these music hall names which is part of the reason for our podcast famous people you've never heard of um but i think what people do appreciate now is the the skill because with things like britain's got talent it's all coming back we're actually seeing proper variety acts again aren't we Really interesting. My husband said exactly the same thing. He, he he won't watch Britain's Got Talent, but and that's the weird thing because he loves the idea of old variety, you know, and mm. kind of 
but he he you know the, the britain's got talent is is very much beneath him and he won't watch it but it is it is basically the rediscovery of variety acts and you know you, you see the most extraordinary thing, people doing extraordinary things on britain's got talent and there's an appetite for it as well there's like a real appetite for it it's great <laughs> it's good bring it back and we just yeah. need a, a chairman in the corner and a, a rousing chorus of down at the old bull and bush at the end at the end yes <laughs> That's one for the oldies watching this. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know what I mean. I know, and I know what you mean as well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, do you know, I, I was reading somewhere um, that it wasn't just in in terms of, sort of the panto. Um, I'm feeling all festive now because it's nearly Christmas. Um, it wasn't just the performers who were considered stars of the panto. Because they these things used to go on for hours and hours, and I think there was one that Mari Lloyd was in where they brought out the set designer for five encores because the set was so spectacular, and they must have had water features and explosions and goodness knows what, and the, the set designer got brought out to actually take calls from the audience. Amazing! That's brilliant, isn't it? Isn't it nice? But that's kind of absolutely justified because, you know, I, the number of times I've gone into a theatre to watch pantomime and you sit in your seats and then the curtains go back or, or perhaps the set's already in place. And it is a sort of a moment of, oh, you know, how well, good. it's glorious. That's, you know, they, they do deserve their own special round of applause, I think, as well. Yeah, I think that's really nice. I think it kind of takes us all back to childhood when it was our first experience of theatre and it was magic. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It was that magic. And that smell as well that you know kind of old theatres have too those things for me are really proustian they're desperately you know whenever I go into an old theatre the smell of it there is something in the dust that you can smell of the past and it is a wonderful thing it's, mm. that sounds like I'm being totally whimsical and fanciful but it is true and you as a performer will know that <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with being whimsical <laughs> <laughs> no nothing no, at all and it's and you do you know you, you go into certain places and you you get good vibes and you go into others and you think bad things happened here and and perhaps it is to do with um superstition and performance and whatever but i I just think that it's all there they 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 move amongst us they do i I believe you i mean theaters are often haunted aren't they there are loads of stories about theater ghosts and kind of the watford palace theater had a ghost that we were all told about you know if you're alone in the gallery you know with your ice cream tray (laughs) what Don't steal the ice creams. That was my dream to be alone in the gallery of the ice cream tray because it meant that um, nobody would buy anything and I wouldn't get the kind of the change wrong. And <laughs> Mary, who was the terrifying kind of like doyen of the usherettes, wouldn't tell me off at the end of every performance. But, and you know, the weird thing was, <laughs> I'm sharing this with you, no one else knows. It's that when I was over, Mary used to take the kind of the change and that would kind of like, you know, go into the theatre pot. And when I was under, I'd have to make it up from the original. <laughs> Oh, she was terrifying. <laughs> oh, no, Mary, whatever became of you? <laughs> I don't know. But it's true about, I mean, you, about atmospheres in theatres. Oh. I mean, I have you ever come across a theatre with a bad atmosphere? Because I don't, I can't, and I've been to a lot, and I can't ever think of one that I felt. No, I don't think I have, actually. I've, I've come into other old certainly ancient buildings with bad atmospheres and I thought I, I don't want to actually be here yeah. but no theatres I think they're no they're cosy they're home yeah I think they're cosy as well and I do know what you mean because working for SPAB which we were talking about at the beginning I have you know 
being with Spab to buildings that are definitely, um, well, this is a good Christmassy kind of story, but they there are definitely stories that have atmospheres and definitely buildings that have, I don't know, almost like a memory of something bad or something bleak about them. Mm. Um, and I haven't, I mean, I've, I've experienced like the atmosphere and I felt shivers in places, but I've never seen anything. But um, I used to work with a lot of building surveyors at Spab and they are quite scientific building surveyors you know they're kind of um they're quite down to earth but I had a chat with before I left actually working at Spurt, we were, I was saying you know have you ever seen a ghost Johnny and he said oh all building surveyors have seen oh yeah we've all felt something and I said but you know you're kind of such a scientific straightforward he said oh no building surveyors we're always alone in old buildings and we you ask any group of building surveyors when they're drunk especially old building surveyors, they'll have a story to tell. So I said, what's your story? And he was working in a really old house in Kent with a moat around it. And he was practically the only person there that day, apart from the custodian. And he could hear a a radio playing upstairs in a room. Um, And it it went on and on. He said, it was like the same tune over and over again. He said, in the end, he got a bit fed up with it. And at the end of the day, he left and said the custodian was locking up. And he said, oh, you know, there was a radio in the room upstairs. And the custodian said, no, no, that absolutely can't be true. And he said, no, no, there was definitely a radio going on. And he said, look, we'll go back and have a look. And they went back and there wasn't a radio in the place. There wasn't there. Oh, my goodness. So that was quite creepy. I that is very creepy. Well, if we're doing ghost stories. Go on, go <laughs> oh, on. There we are. Let's do a ghost story for Christmas. Yeah. So there is um, a family legend Um I think it's a myth that my great grandmother was actually on the music halls. Now, I think it's a myth because no one knows what her name was. So no one's actually putting any facts out there. But anyway, so that's the the background is uh, my grandmother was on, on the music halls. And I did a show many moons ago with a, a chap I'd never met before, but I was convinced that I knew him. And he was convinced that he knew me and we hit it off. We got on really well right from from day one. And we went through every aspect of our lives to date to find out where we could possibly have crossed paths. And we hadn't. And I then got a gig doing an old time musical for six months in Blackpool. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And he came up to see me on a little holiday. And at the end of the, the evening, he said, well, I watched your turn and I'm desperately upset because there was no swing. And I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, you told me that you would be on a swing covered in flowers going out across the audience. And I couldn't, I just couldn't imagine you doing it. And I said, no, but the family rumour is that that was what my great grandmother's act was. That's extraordinary. Weird, That's wasn't it? Really weird. Really weird. So, and you haven't had that conversation with him. You had no. No. That's really odd, isn't it? Really odd. I need to do a bit more digging to find out exactly which great-grandmother and uh, and see if we can, we can find her. But uh, I'd love it to be true. But Ooh, I would as well. But isn't that, I've, apparently I've got a great-great-uncle um, who was the black sheep of the family who went on stage under the glorious name Bentley Middleton. And I can't, I don't know. And so if there's anyone listening to this out there who has any knowledge of Bentley Middleton, I would love to know more about him. <laughs> I'd love to think that at least one of us made it onto the stage. Oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> a 
a lot of TV and, and sort of a lot of draw, film drama, it really concentrates on the kind of like the, in the Downton Abbey. It's terribly polite. And I always feel with Downton Abbey, the servants are just in there as an afterthought because they mm-hmm. it would have them in. But you know, we're really looking forward to getting back to the upstairs world of Maggie Smith and you know, kind of the family and things. Um, and I think there's a great deal more to be said for the lives of ordinary people and you know the entertainment that ordinary people enjoyed. You know, it's it's not all kind of um, as I said earlier, it's not all polite drawing room dramas. You know, the the vast majority of all of our ancestors, if we were living in Britain, you know, probably went to these at some point pubs, backstreet pubs where musicals started, and then went to musicals. And it's probably in our DNA, a lot of us, this kind of you know, real I was watching a great program the other day, it was a repeat of the, the Road to Weatherfield which was about the, the making, because this week is the 60th anniversary of Coronation Street, which I think has a sort of musical feel to it, or it did have. It you does. Know? It did. It originally, it did. Originally. Yeah, that wonderful sort of characterisation and the kind of the, 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 the rhythms of people's voices and the patterns of people's voices, and that was sort of woven into it. And the humour. Um, yeah, everyone. The humor. They, they laughed at themselves a lot. Completely. And, pe- and people laughed back because they saw themselves, mm. you know, they, they heard themselves and they saw themselves for the first time. And you know, I just think, you know, I think we're losing that a little bit, that real, you know, and people may, may make the argument that EastEnders and Coronation Street now does it, but I'm not sure it does it in quite the same way. We take ourselves a little more seriously now than I think yeah. we used to. I think so, yeah. And I think we've lost the idea of character. Because both um, EastEnders, when it started, and you know, obviously, particularly Coronation Street, it was built, it was constructed around characters mm. um, and strong female characters for Coronation Street, really particularly. Um, I wouldn't have messed with Ina Sharples. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and Pat, you know, that was the other. Yes. Actually, if you haven't seen it, The Road to Weatherfield is great. It's really, really good. Um, but, you know, but the whole, the drama was constructed around the characters and it wasn't, you know, you didn't have to have a plane crashing into the middle of the high street or something like that. You know, it was enough to have two strong women having a Barney in the middle of the street. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which, you know, I kind of, and that power and that strength and that character, I think that goes, you know, that 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 to me is quite a visceral link to to the musicals and, and the, you know, the power of the people who took part. And, and I think the, the other... Um, thing on the TV that did musical really well was Ripper Street. Yes, it did. Yeah, that was it, it excellent did. because it wasn't yeah. even musical in a real proper theatre. No, for most of it, it was a back room of a pub, it, as so yeah. many of them were. Yeah, and people don't pretend to realise that, do they? I think they all thought they were nice kind of dual box theatres. Um, but as you say, you know, most of them were just a kind of a wooden raised platform in the back of a bar where people would belt out a few songs. <laughs> Actually, the awful thing about Ripper Street, or wonderful thing about it, I love Ripper Street, was that um, the, the day I finished the first Kitty, um, about a week, it, it was in the paper that you know they were doing a series about um, you know London and the East End, and a musical was involved, and it was kind of thinking, oh God, no, it's exactly what I've just read. <laughs> Not now. <laughs> Not now. <laughs> and it was just for TV. I can't wait. It's still, you know, it goes goes in and out. And one of the things I heard was, oh, it reminds me of Ripper Street. I was thinking, yes. I didn't copy. <laughs> it's different. It's got lots of women in it. Ripper Street didn't. <laughs> it's complimentary. Complimentary. Absolutely. That's a very good word. I remember that. It's complimentary. Yeah, you are. Complimentary to Ripper Street. Thank you. And you came first. <laughs> but it has got lots of women in it. And they are they are strong women and they've got very definite characters, haven't they? Yes. Yeah. Um, they yeah. go try to 
I, tr- well, I didn't want them to be kind of like one big amorphous East End blob, basically, okay. which you know, they could have all had that. And the other thing is that they all do speak in quite a strong idiom, Cockney idiom. Oh. Um, and that is my family, really, because my, as I said earlier, my, my great grandparents and grandparents were born in Limehouse. Um, and, you know, they worked the docks. Um, and I do remember as a child, literally kind of like keeping really quiet when kind of all my aunts were in the room with my grandmother just listening to them chat because it was fascinating and you know they used to forget that the kids were in there and they'd be telling the most awful stories about people in the road you know and things enjoyed this great you know these cockney accents that had a real rhythm and I hopefully I gave that to Kitty I definitely I think I did give it to Kitty and to the other characters oh well, I, I think you did because that, that's my background as well my family are all from that they're all dock workers um oh. We've got um, a lot in common, you and I. We have, we have indeed. Yes, yeah, so the Royal Alberts, where my dad worked for years, oh. um, and they used to have, you know, family gatherings. It's where I learned all my Cockney rhyming slang because it was the everyday conversation. Yeah, yeah it was. You know, and I still go up the apples when I'm going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but where do they come from, those things? Who knows? I know it's apple, know it's apple and spare pears, but, you know, why make it longer? <laughs> but I know that they used to do my, my family used to and they used to have nicknames as well for people to so when they thought they were speaking in code in front of the kids they'd go with things like kind of like Omo four doors down <laughs> and, it's, and it's, apparently poor Omo four doors down was known for having really grey washing and so that was a reference to the fact that she never used Omo washing <laughs> cast of characters who kind of inhabited my parent, my grandparents childhood <laughs> <So>. that's wonderful <laughs> I think we were born out of our time I think I, I know the Victorian lifestyle but with all the creature comforts of the 21st century is what yeah, I want definitely. I think hot water heat and flushing toilets would be very important but apart from that apart from that would be and a fun. tv I'd quite like a tv because I do love a bit of tv <laughs> <laughs> so I now I do need to ask you um, because I like to ask people because I'm nosy. If you were having this fantasy dinner party that I've been talking about yes. for weeks, right. who's on your guest list? So how many guests am I allowed to have? I, I think well, if we stick to a bubble of six, the rule of six is <laughs> yes, oh, we're we, out not done. actually make a list and I've got one, two, five, six, seven, eight. I've got 10 on my list. Oh, have you? We can have two tables. That's fine. We have two tables. All right. That's fine. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, this was really hard. This is, this is a horrible question. But because there's lots of things that interest me. Um, and I kind of like all these. But anyway, I decided I would go for Nell Gwynn and Charles II. And I also wanted my, the people I invited to get on with each other and have someone that they would, you know, enjoy being with. Oh, so, that's nice. So I got Nell Gwynn and Charles II. Um, I'd like E.F. Benson, who wrote the Map and Lucia books, um, and M.R. James. Because they're both of an age, they both knew their way around kind of like people who were vicars and archbishops and things, and they both write cracking um, ghost stories. And M.R. James in particular writes the best ghost stories. And I thought, at Christmas, he would be the best guest. Absolutely. And E.F. Benson was very funny and very charming. And not many people know that E.F. Benson was actually an ice skating champion for Britain, which sounds really unlikely. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's no. That's one for the pub quiz. Thank you. Definitely. Um, I would also like uh, Noel Coward and Paula Grady because they both uh, lived in the same house in Kent. And they're both, I think Paula Grady is just a lovely man. He makes me laugh whenever I see him on telly. And Noel Coward, I think, is incredibly witty and funny and sophisticated oh, yes. and would, would bring joy to any dinner party, I feel, and be very wicked. 
Um, I'm running. I'm, there's not many more now. Kenneth Williams and Barbara Windsor. Absolutely. Because they just also bring joy to any dinner party, I feel. And Kenneth Williams, I love. In fact, there he is on the Carry On Cleo poster. Oh, look, he's on the wall. On the wall. We love Kenny. Um, Barbara Windsor was at school with my mum. Oh, did she? They both went to Our Ladies Convent School in Stamford Hill. And um, the nuns used to line them up in height order to go into assembly. Um, Barbara Windsor and my mum were both the shortest in the school, no matter what year they were in. So it's either them close together. And my last two are Victoria Wood and Judy Waters. Oh, perfect. I, I thought about my own list and I thought, well, there are all these worthy people who I really admire, but would I want to go for a drink with them? Probably not. Would, would they be fun? No. I always I do feel I should have put some worthier names on that list. But on the other hand, if I'm going to spend an evening with them, I want to, I want to just sit there and listen, really, and have a great time. I think actually the thing that unites a lot of people on my list is they're quite wicked. They're very cheeky, aren't they? Cheeky wicked, yeah. That's very cheeky. And didn't um, Barbara Windsor played Mari Lloyd once, didn't she? She did. And yeah. she did. And also she quite often appeared at the Brick Lane musical, didn't she, Barbara Windsor? Yes. Um, yes. You know, kind of. And, and she, she, her voice sounded very much like my mum's voice and really like all my aunt's voices. So I've always had a bit of a soft spot in my heart for her because whenever I see her in something like Carry On Spying, it's my mum I hear when she talks. So <laughs> she can't pr- quite pronounce her R's. And it's a, I've noticed it's a really sort of Cockney North London thing. They don't say it, but it's always a sort of a, it's always an L in it. It's, um, so, and I can, I'm almost like Professor Higgins. I can spot a North Londoner by their Cockney accent. I can differentiate between South London and North London. <laughs> oh, so can I. I think if you've lived yeah. in London any amount of time, you can, you can do you that. You can, can't you? You really can. Yeah. And that's the big divide. The north-south divide is uh, is the north and south of that Thames, isn't it? Absolutely. There be dragons. Nell Gwynne actually and um, Charles II because I think that's a fascinating period in British history it's sort of a you know after the, the years of the interregnum when everything was so dull and so bleak everything suddenly lit up again a bit like the 1920s I think after yes. the World War and perhaps what may happen I'm hoping after this terrible year we've all had oh let's hope so mm. yes I keep saying they they closed the theatres during the plague <laughs> We came back. Stronger. We came back stronger. Cromwell closed the theatres, didn't he? We came back. No, he didn't, but the Puritans did, and we came back stronger. So we will. We will return. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Now, um, the Kitty Peck books are all out. They're all out. They're published by Faber and Faber. There are four of them. That one's the first series kitty peck um, and the music hall murders yes kitty, kitty peck, peck. And child of ill fortune the child of ill fortune kitty peck and the daughter of sorrow getting bleaker it is getting bleaker <laughs> and kitty peck and the parliament of shadows that came out last november this time last year actually that one came out oh that's lovely and they, and they really are lovely books they're very accessible but you know they you learn something from them as well and they're a good jolly story so oh, good i'm glad you said that they're quite dark actually they're quite it's dark. well yeah i think jolly's probably the wrong word 
they're kind of melodramatic romps gothic what did I describe them to somebody as gothic melodramatic romps and I think that's what they are Thank you for listening to Famous People You've Never Heard Of. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review and subscribe so that other people can find us more easily and you'll never miss an episode. If you'd like to support our work, it's easy to do. Just go to www.patreon.com bluefiretheatre and don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter.